Uh, earlier this week, uh, I found uh, a job description for a pastor uh, on the internet, and uh, it's broken up into three main categories. Uh, let me read it to you. Uh, the first one is, uh, the first category is leadership. And under the responsibilities that this pastoral job description lists under leaderships, here's what they are. One is build a 10-year strategic plan and execute it. The second one is to steward the financial resources of the church with precision. The third is to create consensus among the board, even though they have very different opinions. Fourth one is to be omnipresent. You're expected to attend all meetings and events, even those that are at the same time in different places. Fifth is provide leadership by being the hands and feet of Jesus, i.e., we don't have a janitor and no one will pick up that old styrofoam cup of coffee from the women's class left on the floor three weeks ago. Uh, finally, as a senior staff member, the pastor will be expected to be attending uh, prayer meetings, staff meetings, and other events purposeful to the mission of the church, including weekends and holidays. And you are allotted two weeks vacation a year, but we reserve the right to grumble about you while you're gone. That's leadership. Preaching. Now, preach powerful, convicting, thoroughly deep, expository messages that are no longer than a TV show. Most include stories, jokes, and illustrations. Oh, and use the Holy Spirit. And second, address uh, all church issues and needs. Third, don't address issues or needs that make people uncomfortable. Fourth, don't offend people with your preaching, but don't worry about offending people in your preaching. It sounds like a contradiction, but it really is not, Pastor. Third category, counsel. Be careful to limit the amount of time you spend on counseling. It's not your first priority. Number two, spend time counseling with any member who needs it any time they need it for as long as they need it. This job description was from a church called Need A Lot Community Church. Now, it's only kind of funny because it's true. I, I, honestly, I don't feel this way uh, here at our church at all. Uh, I love my job description. I don't feel like you guys ask crazy amounts for me, so I'm thankful to be here. But I know enough pastors to know that this is true for many of them. And when you think of a pastor, I mean, it's okay. You, you, you th should think of someone who's a good teacher. You should think of someone who can cast vision. You should think of someone who's a strong presence as a leader. You should look for someone who has good people skills. You should look at somebody who's not totally overwhelmed by financial documents. But I think we have high expectations for Christian leaders, and we should. But I think sometimes they're higher than they should be. I mean, it makes sense that they're high, you know? I mean, Christian leaders are to serve on behalf of a holy God. Christian leaders are supposed to help people more than they're to hurt them. There are high standards. But what are those, really? I mean, if you look at the scriptures, you can see, it, even in the life of David, a framework for what a Christian leader should be about. I mean, David, he's, he's an accomplished person. I mean, he, he, his reign... Uh, of Israel had reached its zenith under his leadership, so it makes sense to look at his life. And as you look at it, I, I think you'll find a characteristic of leadership that is often overlooked when this subject comes up. The characteristic, I think, is absolutely essential to the life of a leader, and it is the ability to be sad. And it's the ability to lead others to do the same. So let's read our text, 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp 
with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how'd it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. The word of the Lord. Maybe the story of David is unfamiliar to you. If that's the case, let me just give you a thumbnail version of it. David was anointed to be king at a very young age, and he had to wait to ascend to the throne because Saul had become the first king of Israel, and he was on the throne, and David was going to be the second king. And Saul was more of a bad king than a good king. And when David was about an adolescent, uh, Saul was being tormented of soul. He had a hard time sleeping, had a hard time finding peace. And somehow it got told to Saul that there was this musician in the land and he was a young boy and his name was David. And so David came and he played his music for Saul and it gave peace to Saul's soul. And so now David is in the realm of Saul's inner circle and he becomes friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. He gets more and more responsibilities, not just playing music, but he actually ends up being an excellent military leader on Saul's behalf as he grows up into a young man. But at some point, as David is accumulating leadership and his reputation is growing, Saul gets very jealous of him. And so he seeks to take him out. And David has to save his neck. So David flees. He's in exile and he runs throughout the, uh, outside of Jerusalem in exile for many, many years after this because Saul kept on hunting him down. Saul wanted to kill him. Now, put yourself in David's shoes. I mean, if I put myself in David's shoes and I were a skilled military official, if I was promised by God that I would one day be king, you know what I'd do? I'd be looking for a way to initiate a coup of this King Saul. I mean, he's wicked. 
And I wouldn't feel bad about it. I'd find a lot of justice in it, you know? I mean, the coup wouldn't necessarily be a power grab. It would be an act of love so as to spare God's people from this abusive leader. But even if I took a more passive approach and I didn't want to have a coup and I just waited on Saul to die so that I could ascend to the throne, I'm pretty sure that once Saul died, I would have thrown the biggest party ever. I mean, in part it would be for me becoming king, but in part it would just be I don't have to sleep with one eye open anymore. I mean, can you imagine the relief after years of running from Saul and now you don't have to worry about it? But a party is not what we see when Saul dies. What we see when Saul dies is David weeping in verses 11 and 12. He's in mourning. He's sad. But why? Why is he sad that this abusive leader who's been chasing him down for years, why is he sad that he's sad? I think there are two reasons. The first is this. The first is that regardless of how Saul treated David, Saul was still God's anointed king. See, in David's mind, what God did for Saul far outweighed anything that Saul did to him. David had to be influenced by God's sovereignty instead of the hate that we would expect to be in his heart. David wouldn't react to the threats of uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't fall into the temptation of vengeance and become a small-souled man. Instead, you see his soul enlarged because he's willing to grieve. I think that's one reason he's sad. The Lord's anointed is dead. The second one, he's just sad that he's sad for Saul. I mean, for all of David's memories of Saul chasing him down, he's also got a vision for the potential for good that Saul possessed being the first king of Israel. David was able to imagine Saul reveling in God's grace, enjoying God's favor, being empowered to lead with God's strength. But instead of Saul enjoying God's grace, we know what he was like. We know he hunted for power. We know that he took slights too personal. We know that he tolerated evil. And so when he dies, David mourns because of Saul's lost opportunity. Now this time, this episode of David being sad wasn't the only one in his life. We see his sadness in two other places. One, we see it in his music, his psalms of lament, and the other one we see in the episodes of his life. I mean, if you look over his life, David has these high points and he does celebrate with passion, but he's also got low points. He's got the low point of sinning in his adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. You see him mourn. You see him grieve. You see him be sad over his sin in Psalm 51. You see him be sad when his beloved son, Absalom, betrays him and ends up dying. It's sad. And then you see him weeping in our text today when his king and his best friend are dead. It's sad. I mean, David pens 72 psalms out of the 150. David is the author and 34 of those 72 psalms are psalms of lament. So that means that half of David's music is sad. Kind of sounds like Adele, doesn't it? <laughs> so you put all this together. You put his music together with the episodes in his life, and you see how David repeatedly 
He faces loss. He faces death. He faces disappointment. And you see him, he never avoids it. He never denies it. And he never soft pedals life's difficulties. In fact, his laments are frank. He's brutally honest and his prayers are really messy. He won't sweep his ugly emotions toward God under the rug. But what you see him that in his mess, he does turn towards God. These are prayers. They're not just thoughts. And they're gritty examples of what it looks like to wrestle with the hard realities of life. And brother and sister, this is why sadness is so important to leadership and to life. See, really, sadness is just is nothing more than the sign that you've lost something or someone that you hold dear. What makes grief so painful is that you're aware of just how good a gift God has given. And that when you grieve, you're, when you lose something that you love, you're implicitly declaring God's goodness and having given that thing or that person to you. So in many ways, if you're never sad, then you've got a question, does anything really matter to you? If you lack sadness, you've got a question if the intimacy or the impact of love has made your life any richer. So this is what makes sadness and grief and anguish and mourning a fundamental part to a full life because it's through grief that you're going to find comfort. It's through grief that you're going to find wisdom as you come to grips with what you have lost. See, in many ways, the better we grieve, the more we heal. What do many of us do? (laughs) What do we do when grief comes on us, when sadness comes on us, what do we do? We try to stave it off, don't we? And I think it's for lots of reasons, but I think there's two main reasons that we stave off sadness. One of the reasons is that we overindulge in it. And when you overindulge in your sadness, you're leaving no room for hope. You have no room for redemption. When you're overindulging in your sadness, you're looking to God and you say, God, you don't care about me. You're not going to help me. And you've left me all alone. Now, in some ways, it sounds healthy. I mean, you're coming to grips with the sad realities of life. But it's unhealthy because there's no room to push the person who's grieving toward hope. That's overindulging our sadness. But the equal but opposite extreme is just as just as, just as potent. It's when we underindulge in it. It's when we jump right to explaining our pain with things like others have it worse. We underindulge in it when we say God's going to work it out for my good. We underindulge in it when we jump right to saying I'm going to stay thankful. Now all those things are true. And it is true that And many of the Psalms of Lament, that's where they end up. But only at the end, only after there's been a season of mourning. See, do you overindulge or do you underindulge? When you look at the life of David and you say, oh gosh, 34, 72, half his songs are sad. He has all these really sad moments in his life. And you see him wrestling with the reality of the pain and brokenness of the world and of his own soul. 
When I see that, the more I see David, the more I see his willingness to be sad, the more I see his willingness to commit to people, the more I see him living his life honestly before God, the more I smell Jesus. I mean, think about the life of Jesus. John 11, chapter, John chapter 11, verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. You see that scene, you've got Mary and Martha, they're really sad because they've lost their beloved brother, Lazarus. And so Jesus comes alongside them and he weeps because Mary and Martha are upset and he weeps because he too has lost his friend Lazarus. See, David smells like Jesus because in Luke 19.41, Jesus is, is all alone. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps for it. He's heartbroken over their unbelief. And this is just one instance of him being heartbroken over people's unbelief. He does so in Mark 3.5 and Mark 8.12 as well. You get to Mark 7.34 and you see Jesus right before he puts his hands on a deaf man's ears, it says he sighs. See, there is something about the ravages of sin that has stirred up deep grief in Jesus. So you see Jesus, he walks through his life and he engages with people and he weeps and he wails and he sighs and he groans over the pain of other people. But he's got his own pain too. You see in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. See, Jesus says this. He's saying it in reference to the cross, and it, it's saying that the cross is going to cause him great sorrow, and he knows it's what he's anticipating. For all the years of his, his life, there's a part of him that's always sad because he knows what's coming. And this is what's been prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, when it says that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows. But this sadness that would reach the peak, it would pinnacle out in the week of the Passion, and Jesus' sorrow would, would increase to the point that he would take his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would ask them to pray with and for him, and they couldn't. They just kept falling asleep. And then as he prayed by himself, he was so heartbroken about the expectation of being separated from his father that he sweat blood. See, do you realize that Jesus could have chosen to never be sad? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Every time you're sad, you can just fix it. Be amazing. He could have turned every sad situation into one of joy. He could have rushed right past the sadness to the healing. I mean, why did he need to cry in John chapter 11 with Lazarus? Why couldn't he just walk straight to the tomb and tell Lazarus to get out of there? But he stops and he cries. Jesus was willing to sit in the pain of those who were hurting, but why would he do it? He did it because he knew you couldn't endure the pain of your own sin alone. He knew that you couldn't endure the pain of losing loved ones. He knew it because he knew you couldn't endure the pain of betrayal. See, you're altogether correct if in the midst of your pain you cry out, I can't bear this anymore. I'm done. It's true, you can't bear it. But brother and sister, can I tell you there's one who can his name, Jesus, and, and he rises up and he says to you, 
I will bear your sorrow. I will bear your pain. I will bear your loss. And I will do it vicariously. You can't bear it. You shouldn't dare to bear it. But I've borne it and I dare to do so. So what's it like to hear those words from Jesus? What's it like to hear that Jesus has pity on you? Does it make you uncomfortable? I mean, if Jesus feels sorry for you for some loss in your life, why can't you feel sorry about it? Why are you choosing to overindulge your grief instead of letting the one who is gentle and lowly of heart lead you to a place of hope? Why are you rushing past the experience of grief when Jesus wants to heal you in the midst of your tears? See, in many ways, experiencing grief isn't especially Christian. I mean, we're all subject to the ups and downs of life, just like everybody else. But what is remarkable about Christian grief is that we can have hope. And that hope's tangible. You see it right there in verse 11 with David. You see what's going on in verse 11. It says that he was with his crew as he grieved. His grief wasn't a solo exercise. He's doing it in community. And I think that's the reason you should be in church. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, you can find people to do life with in a lot of spheres. You can find them at work. You can find them at the gym. You can find them on your kids' sports teams. You can find them in your neighborhood. But can I ask you a question? Will any of those people help you grieve? When any of those people bring you a casserole with a lot of sour cream in it? I mean, are any of those people, are, are, are they going to, on the one-year anniversary of your loss, send you a text? Are they still going to be in your life on year 13 of the anniversary of that loss? See, what the church is, the church is a body of Christ, and we become embodied hope to those who are sad. Brothers and sisters, can I give you a tip? on loving people who have experienced loss. Let me give you a tip. I hear a lot of people say, when they see someone who's really sad, I don't know what to say. And I tell them every time, you're doing great. Don't say anything. In fact, if you're convinced that you don't have anything to say, you're doing really well. You're doing a lot better than the person who wants to tell them all the reasons that they should have hope. See, in a lot of, a lot of ways, when we find hurting people... We don't like them hurting. We want them to feel better. So we say things to them that are true. But brother and sister, the best approach you can demonstrate is to be their companion and to sit with them as long as they're sad. See, Jesus' presence is all you need in those situations. But there's another reason you need the church is that you need people to teach you to grieve. In verse 17, you see David lamenting. And then in verse 18, you see what he says? He orders that everyone in Israel, he doesn't say everyone in Israel be, that everyone lament. He says everyone be taught to lament. Meaning it doesn't come natural to them. That David is going to step up as a leader and teach them to lament. And that's our job as pastors. I mean, of all the things that we have to do, preach, lead, counsel, pray, 
Grieving and teaching you to grieve might be what is most urgent today. Because what comes natural is that we over or underindulge our grief. We need someone to show us by their way of life and in the word how to grieve well. We need someone to show us that Christian grief is distinctive. But brother and sister, one day grief will be no more. You begin to see that with Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus was sad, but he wasn't habitually sorrowful. I mean, he did eat and drink with gladness. He exalted in the Lord. And his joy wasn't a delusion where he's just ignoring the pain of life. In those joyous moments, you're seeing the first glimpses of him breaking the power of sin and death because there is coming a day when sadness will no longer be a thing. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. There's coming a day where death will be no more. There's coming a day there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, just joy. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do look to that day. Uh, we look forward to the day where there will be no more tears. Whether it's just our own individual lives, sad things that have happened to us, personally, or whether it's what we see in the news. We have lots to be sad about. Lord, we thank you that we are given the promise and the resurrection that all sad things will come untrue. Oh, Lord, come quickly. In Christ's name, amen.